0: I still, I still remember well my parents LP collection, or I'm not sure I would call it a collection, and nowadays LPs are sort of a niche thing, depending on your your age and your particular interests, you might not even know what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about vinyl LPs, you know, those big black vinyl discs that you play by laying them on a, on a turntable and carefully placing a needle to run through those micro grooves, as they're called, on the disc. Analog music recording, right? And there's something really special about the, this analog sound of of an LP, which is why it's still cherished by this sort of niche community of audiophiles who will have carefully curated collections. That's kind of where you find LPs uh, nowadays. But that wasn't necessarily the case back then. LPs were still something that people just had around the house. It was fairly common. And my parents, anyway, had a number of LPs, uh, which which us kids would enjoy listening to, something fun about getting the thing and, you know, flipping it when you go from one side to the other and all of that. And I particularly liked my mom's LPs of Brazilian music, Brazilian popular music, especially the ones from Chico Buarque, just a very well-known Brazilian composer. And one of those albums that she had in an LP was his 1976 release called Meus Caros Amigos, My Dear Friends, would be the translation. And that... Particular album has a very well known song that I really loved. And I remember carefully placing it on the, on the turntable and, and placing the, the needle at the right place, you know, uh, to hear that particular song that was called or that is called Ukisera. Será? And as is often the case, uh, translation is, is something of a, of a betrayal, or in any case, a, a reduction. Yeah. Traduttori, traditori, as the Italians say. It's a bit... How do you translate poetry? Is difficult. But, but the title of the song, o means uh, what is it? What is it? Perhaps it's better rendered, what might it be? For poetical purposes, maybe it's better to put it that way. And... It's a wonderful piece of poetry and songwriting and the genius of it is that it never answers its main question. What might it be? It just repeats the question and it repeats the question into images that the poetry sort of draws and images that evoke possible answers and possibly one answer. Or maybe it's more like the feeling of an answer, the desire for an answer. One of the verses goes in a very rough translation, and it goes, What might it be, what might it be that lives in the ideas of these lovers that the most delirious poets sing about, that the drunken prophets swear on, that is in the pilgrimage of the mutilated? What might it be, what might it be? And the song never answers its question. But the ears that hear it, they yearn for an answer, right? And and arguably yearn for that thing, that which the song evokes. Now, this song was released, as I mentioned before, in the Brazil of 1976, a Brazil under a military dictatorship where songs that invited questions and evoked unruly images were not welcome. And so the song was censored. And that, perhaps, more than anything else, is what cemented its place in Brazilian culture, the fact that it was censored. Whatever Chico Buarque's intentions were, it became a song for that which could not be named, yet was deeply yearned for. A song of and for freedom. And many years later, Shikobu had access to the files, yeah, to the files pertaining the censorship of the song, so the official files. And he found the censor's reasons perplexing. <laughs> because they had presumed a specific answer, where he had wished to give none. But be that as it may, for many who, especially during those decades and through the years, for many who sang and who played and who danced to this song in neighborhood bars, in street carnivals, in circles of friends, in hidden groups, in universities, It was an expression of freedom. Because, in a way, how else can we speak of freedom if not through poetry? If not evoking images of yearning and of hope? Especially when trying to grasp freedom in a context where it is lacking. How do you speak of it? How do you speak of it? Now, the story of this song is, as I, as I tell it today, as I told it today, a story about expressions of freedom in a context where freedom was challenged, cornered, and where the lack of freedom was tearing a country apart. The other story that I want to share with you today is a very different story. And it is told by a much more ancient storyteller and in a very different context. But it is also a story that tries to find language to speak about freedom in a context where something is being teared apart, torn apart by the oppression of freedom. And the story is told by St. Paul, and it is told in his letter to the Galatians, which we have been uh, spending time with these these last weeks here in OIC. And today I want to read with you from chapter 4, from verse 21 up to the first first verse of chapter 5. Uh, So I will read what St. Paul writes there from verse 21. And he writes, tell me. You who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. How else can we speak of freedom if not through poetry and evoking images? Images that churn sort of the loose pieces of our souls. And here Paul brings an allegory. And it is of utmost importance that we remember that. The NIV translation we read says these things are being taken figuratively, right? Uh, the original straight out says this is an allegory. This is an allegory. And this is very important. I, I confess I struggled. I hesitated with this story at first. And I struggled with these images. And I struggled because the story of how Abraham and Sarah, how they treat, Haggad is a horrible story. It's a terribly unjust story. And I I struggle because there seems to be very little critique of the whole construct of slavery here, right? It's a very different time. And also I struggle because there are those who have taken Paul's image way beyond its literary context and its literary use, and have abused it as a base for anti-Semitic theologies. And I think it's important to name those things. They're there. They're part of the struggle we have with scriptures that are from a different time and how they're used. But here, it's important to remember that Paul isn't explaining something about Abraham. Sarah, and Haggad for us. What Paul is doing is he is building an allegorical landscape that evokes images that speak into the experienced reality of the people he's speaking to and to what is going on in the churches of Galatia. And it is speaking into the issues of freedom and lack of freedom in that context. Paul had earlier in the letter to the Galatians, he had argued that Christ was the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. Now, what is that? That is a foundational promise to the understanding of the people of God. And it comes from way before the Torah or before the law as it was understood by the Jews. It comes from the beginning of their story. The root of how they understood themselves and how they understood God's revelation to them as a people. And it comes to when God calls Abraham and says, go from your land. Go where I'm going to send you. I will bless you. I will make a people through you. And through you, I will bless the nations. And that promise was for the Israelites through many years, the beginning of their understanding as a people of God. They were the people that were the inheritance of Abraham. They were the expression of that blessing through the ages. And Paul looks at that and he says, and we talked a bit about this last uh, a, a few weeks ago, he talks a bit about how it talks about the, her- the seed, right? The offspring. And he says that offspring is Christ. And in Christ, God is truly fulfilling that promise to its full extent. Because through Christ, now all nations are truly being blessed by the revelation of God to Abraham. That's Paul's argument, right? So he's saying everything that happens in between happens under and at the service and in the fulfillment of this promise, which is now fully fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the one through whom God fully reveals himself and and brings a means of redemption to all of humankind. And Paul had already been doing this before. And when he now picks this story with, goes back to Abraham and transports what's going on with him back to this Allegorical image of Abraham. This, this allegory is serving two purposes. One, it is reaffirming that the non Gentile, the non Jews, the Gentile, the non Jews believers in, uh, in, a, in the churches of Galatia, that they were children of Abraham and children of the promise. Now, why is he needing to say that? And then it's worth remembering what the whole conflict was all about, what the whole letter to the Galatians is all about. And it comes because after these communities of believers, these churches that we might call them today, uh, had started in regions outside of Israel, in mostly Gentile regions in the region of the province of Galatia, that's why it's called the letter to the Galatians, uh, we had these communities of followers of Christ, of Christian churches that, were start, that had started, uh, but then, at a second stage, people came from Jerusalem, from Israel, who were, let us call them, uh, Jewish hardliners, right? Uh, and they were coming to these communities and saying, if you want to follow Christ, Christ was a Jewish Messiah. If you want to follow Christ, you need to become Jewish, and you need to follow the full extent of the Torah, of the Jewish laws, especially because those were strong markers of identity, uh, Jewish purity laws regarding circumcision and regarding food and regarding manner of worship. So this message is creating conflict and split in the and congrega- the communities, in the communities in Galatia. And at the heart of it is the question: do we belong? And do we or do we not? Are we part of the people of God or do we need to do more in order to belong? Are we falling short of the requirements so that we may be considered people of God? And Paul is, with this allegory, he's reaffirming that no, you are children of the promise not because you submit to the Jewish laws, but because of Christ. Because Christ is the seed that fulfills the promise that God had made to Abraham. And with this, Paul, again, is not saying that 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 was not part of the development of the promise, but he's saying that in Christ, all nations are finally truly included. Wasn't that the promise? Through you, I will, be, will make you a blessing to all the nations. Through you, all the nations will be blessed. So Paul is arguing that, but he's also doing something else, which is he is arguing that submitting to Torah, submitting to the, to, to the law as a necessity for inclusion, that that would be, in fact, walking away from the Abrahamic promise and not towards it. Because the whole argument of these Jewish hardliners uh, was that you need to do this in order to be part of the promise. And Paul is flipping that on his head and is saying, no, if you do that as non-Jews, if you now start to submit to all of these rules and understand them as necessary for your belonging, you are in fact walking away from the promise, undoing and not trusting the promise of God. So he makes this image of these two uh, women as two covenants to essentially speak about two ways of engaging with the promise. The promise that God would be with us, for us, and make us into his people. And there is one way, which is the way of freedom, and there is one way, which is the way of slavery. And that's what he's doing with this image. And in this image, he is saying that the law, in the context of the fulfillment of promise in Christ, that the law was essentially a means of human control and therefore a rejection of grace. A rejection of grace. To put it differently, the children of freedom are the children of God's redemptive grace are the children who say what God has promised and what God has done in Christ is enough. Is enough. The children of freedom are the children of God's redemptive grace. And the children of slavery are the children of mankind's attempts of control. And here, we have to go a bit into the story of Hagar and Sarah and how that happened. And this is why Paul brings, because this is their story, right? And he brings them into the story to imagine the logic of what's going on. And what happens is that Abraham had promised, or God had promised to Abraham, sorry, that through his descendants, he would bless the nations and he would be blessed. But Abraham had no kids. And Abraham was getting old. And Sarah was getting old. So God we got to fix the promise, <laughs> right? we got to do something. This ain't going anywhere. So how do we use a bit of human wit to fix God's promise? And what Sarah does then is she does something which was actually a resource at the time in the culture. If a woman was barren, couldn't bear children, She could get one of her slaves to bear children for her. And that's what she does. She gets Haggad, a slave in the household. She offers her to Abraham. She says, Abraham, you have a child with her, and this child will be considered my child because she is my slave. You can see everything that is wrong here, right? But Abraham does it. Abraham does it, has a child with Hagar, Ishmael. And eventually, yeah, this leads to conflict, right? This leads to division. Because once Hagar has the child, Sarah feels that she's no longer favored because she hasn't birthed the child of the promise. And it's, the story goes with Abraham trying to figure out this thing until eventually Sarah does indeed become pregnant and have the ch- Isaac have the child which, through whom the, the people of Israel would come. right? And Ishmael and Haggad are expelled, basically, and God makes his own covenant with them. I'm not going to go into that whole thing. But Paul transports them into this story. And you see how it is a story of an attempt to fix God's promises with our own resources and with our own strategies. And then Paul flips it on his head and he says, this system, this system that demands the law to fix God's promise, to complement it and to make it enough, is the system of slavery. It's the system of trying to fix things our own way, and it just creates more division and brokenness. It is, in fact, Paul is, in fact, um, quite tongue-in-cheek when he says that the current Jerusalem are the descendants of Haggad. It's almost offensive in the context, but he's on purpose in the context of the allegory. He's flipping things on their heads to call attention to that. That the children of slavery are the children of mankind's attempt of control. And there is, of course, an attraction to that, isn't there? We want to fix stuff. We want to make things work. And attraction of a law-based spirituality and of a law-based community of belonging, well, let's name it, right? The attraction of legalism is that it's measurable, it's comparable. You can somehow put it on a paper and do checks, you know? You pass, you don't. Isn't that how we do Like work? Isn't that how we do job interviews? Isn't that how we do school acceptance? Isn't that how we do sports? Isn't that how we do so many things? You check, right? You check against something, and that's the traction. It's measurable, it's comparable. Also, conveniently, for those who have power, it is subject to hierarchization, right? You can scale people. Who's better? Who's worse? Who has more checks? Who has less? A religion of rules, in that sense, is much more convenient for our penchant for corruption and for mutual oppression than a religion of freedom is. It's a lot easier to control people. It's a lot easier to enforce your authority in a legalistic system. But Paul flips it. Flips it on his head. The children of freedom are the children of God's redemptive grace. The children of slavery are the children of mankind's attempts of control. And this is not specific to Jewish legalism. This is what we get when we sort of just pull it out of its context, right? But actually, in the letter itself, just a bit before the the part that we read, in the beginning of... Uh, And from verse 8, from chapter 8, when he's leading towards this allegory, Paul says, and now he's speaking to the Galatian community with with a majority of non-Jews, right, of Gentiles. And he says, formerly, when you did not know God, so now he is speaking to the Gentiles. Because that's how you speak to Gentiles in the ancient world. That's how a Jew speaks to Gentiles. You presume they don't know God. So you're speaking to them about God, right? Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have was- wasted my efforts on you. And Paul is now putting in the same package, like comparing the own tradition, religious traditions that the Gentiles had from before with what they're doing now or being called to do within the Jewish system. Of laws and regulations. And why is he doing that? Because he's calling attention to you're operating on the same system, right? The same mechanism that presumes that these things are necessary and are barriers to God's grace. In another translation, uh, it will say instead of, let me find where we are here. how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces it says to those weak and beggarly forces forces that beg And that's a wonderful image because it points to a religiosity that needs to cave attention and favor from the divine that needs to sometime somehow ask for it and find ways of arguing for it and beg for God's grace with all the ways in which we can convince him of it, rather than a faith that trusts and relies on a generous God, on a God that is faithful to the promise. How do we speak about freedom? How do we speak about lived freedom, if not through Poetry, (laughs) through images we tried to grasp to make sense of, of life. This was a powerful allegory for that community of Christian believers in the province of Galatia. It spoke to the story they were being grafted into. It spoke to the story that was trying to be imposed on them. It spoke to the context that they were in. It spoke about freedom in Christ. It spoke about freedom in Christ in the context of community. It spoke to their division. It spoke to the broken relations among them. It spoke to the feelings of not belonging and of being held prisoner or being withheld from freedom. And the question is: What kind of images, what kind of poetry and songs we are needing, so that we may speak of freedom in our communities? Now that we hopefully get a bit what Paul is doing with this image, right? How does it speak to us? Now maybe. Hagar and Sarah don't immediately speak to us before we do all of this all of this legwork, right? All of this mental work, all of this interpretation work. But now that we see what's going on in this community, what are the, what are the images? What are the what does the voice of Christ and of the God of the promise, how does that shake our status quo? What are the songs and the images? Or the conflicts that get us hoping and yearning for something else. And the only way we start to address that is by recognizing our brokenness. It's by recognizing the places where it doesn't fit. It's by recognizing our prejudices. It's by recognizing our distances. It's by recognizing the places where we would rather impose a set of rules than sit around the same table? Dare we touch these things? Dare we imagine other landscapes and other futures (laughs) and let those shape us? And that does not mean that things changed overnight, right? That's why Paul is writing this letter, because this is tough work. This is everyday work. But can we hope Can we speak of freedom and can we try to let it shape our very communities of faith? And we've been talking about this in OIC for the last weeks. And every Sunday, every time, as I come to the end of this, I ask myself, what can OIC be in this context? What can we be, you know? We meet here every week because we declare that we have found freedom in Christ. What does that look like? Do we see each other? Do we see who's missing? Do we see who's pushed out? Do we celebrate and dream about the implications of meeting like we do across cultural differences, across uh, church tradition differences? Do we dare to imagine a world and a kind of community of faith that, where that's in a growing reality, this togetherness in Christ? And do we dare to let that dream take shape in our bodies more and more? Do we do that exercise? Do we ask, what might it be? How might it be? What does it look like? And do we let that holy hope, move us. I found it almost funny to find out that that Chico Buarque wasn't necessarily talking about freedom or that that was not his direct agenda, you know, because for me it was obvious when I was a kid and when I heard a story from my parents and when I studied the context of the military dictatorship, I was like, yeah, you know, <laughs> This is what we're imagining and, and going into. But I, 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 th- I, I love that he did it that way, that he left the question open, right? But the reason this song came to me is, that, is this image of the people daring to dance into a hope of something that they want, right? Daring to play a tune, that speaks defiantly of something that will be. Somehow transporting it to now. And I think we can do that with poetry, we can do that with art, we can do that with song, and we can do that with community. We can do that with our relationships. With the tiny ways in which we transport into our personal relationships, into our community relationships, these things we dream and speak of. St. John gives us a vision when he's speaking of Revelation and he's wrapping the story of the world and all these symbols that we see in the book of Revelations. And he gives us a vision of people of all nations and all tongues bringing their beauty before the throne of God and worshiping him with one voice in togetherness. Do we dare to transport those images to our personal relationships? The gospel writers, the letter writers like Paul and again, St. John, they give us images of forgiveness and reconciliation. Do we dare to transport them into our little relationships? Maybe we can hope that our story will be a story that speaks of that. will be a story that speaks of freedom in Christ, unity in Christ, grace taking shape in lived lives. And it is our walk and our task as we go from here to keep on asking, what does it look like? How might it be? How can it be? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you that you may know that He is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn His face towards each and every one of you into the challenges that you face, the hopes that you yearn for, that He may bring you of His peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and serve the world, serve each other, serve the Lord joyfully. Amen.